this is Take Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. I'm your host, Jen Rafferty, a music educator, author, and huge social science nerd. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you as we highlight the intersection between music education and the social sciences. Hello, and welcome back to Take Notes. On this week's podcast, I spoke with Abigail Blair and Catherine Finch, who are elementary school music teachers in the suburbs of Chicago and co-authors of Full Steam Ahead and Everyone Loves a Story, two books on transformational teaching strategies in your music classroom. By using student-centered techniques and the makerspace philosophy, Abigail and Catherine have created music classrooms that allow their students to take the lead in their own learning experiences. It was so great to talk with them about how they created the Blair Finch Project to keep pushing music education forward in new directions. So take a listen and take notes. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy about your the child-centered learner perspective and how creativity plays a role in that. Because oftentimes when we talk about music, we talk about expressive and creative outlet, but expression and creativity are two very different things. And so how, or or what do you do in the classroom that, that fosters that creativity? Well, I think, um, Whenever we're planning lessons, um, this is one thing, it's good to have someone else looking at your lessons and having conversations with you because um, I might create a lesson and think this is really fun. It's a great chance for them, kids to do this activity or we do this movement and it's very expressive, but then it kind of ends and we've been challenging each other to say, well, what's the next step of creativity? How can we um, give the kids a chance to be creative and show their learning. You know, we always talk about assessments too. Schools want all of this, everything done about assessments, but what are we truly assessing? You know, are we doing worksheets where they just give us answers or are we getting the chance to see their learning in action? So we've really been pushing ourselves to add that extra step every time of how are we giving them some creative outlet? Um, If you're learning TA and TT, that's great. We can do dictation for a a week, but then how are they creating with that? Are they able to apply that on their own? Um, It's a lot more fun from the learner perspective if they get to make something and make choices. And from the teacher perspective, that shows me they know what kind of choices to make. So um, yeah, I would say just kind of reflecting on our lesson plans and making sure we always add that one element somewhere in the process for them. And then I think something that led us to write our full steam ahead book about um, creating makerspaces and create and the steam experience was if you, I don't know, to me, when I think, okay, I'm going to try a steam activity to me, that's uh, it, it, it's immediately going to be this project that kids are going to have a lot more voice and choice with, and they're going to have to explore, discover, and put something and create something that create a product all on their own, kind of go through that design thinking process um, from beginning to end and whether the product is where we wanted it to be for it's, it's took it taken me a while to understand, like, it's the process. It's the process, like where I start and where I end is going to be different where you start and you end, but I learned so much along the way. Uh, and there's so much value in me creating something and putting it out in the world, me learning that my voice matters and it's important that I contribute and I create. So I feel like 
uh, once, once we kind of uh, took some time to really dive into some STEAM activities, it really helps you see that learner experience. And then it just helps you want to see like, how can I then infuse that in more of the things that I do, right? That I don't just have to throw away everything I've done, but how can I really keep that learner experience in, in all the things that I do with the kids? So you had mentioned um, design thinking and you mentioned makerspace earlier, and you're actually the second group of teachers who have spoken to have explicitly made parallels between the two. And I was wondering if you could just talk about how you came across or discovered the maker movement and the design theory, and then why or how you made that transfer to music education in your classroom. Um, I think for me, it was, uh, so I guess we had a, um, a professional development at our school that talked about design thinking. And they kept saying design thinking, design thinking. I'm like, what is design thinking? <laughs> so it really just, I guess it wasn't defined very well when they presented it. And so it was just this thing when I was like, I gotta know, I, you know, and so I kind of did some digging um, and John Spencer has uh, fabulous things that are not music related necessarily, but just, you know, a very, um, I'm trying to say just that he has a great message. He has great videos and, and blogs and things. And so I just kind of dove into his um, study or his explanations of design thinking and uh, empowerment. And that's kind of where, and just innovating in, in education and just thinking like, this is, I want kids to be lifelong musicians. This is, this is how I'm going to help them be lifelong musicians to learn that they don't need me. They can leave my classroom and they can do these things and they don't need Mrs. Finch to, to help them start up a band or start up, you know, creating something on a DAW or something. So it was just kind of understanding that design thinking process and realizing when I nerd out at home on an air fryer and we got that last summer, I made anything possible in the air fryer, right? I just nerded out on the air fryer, but just understanding that process of like, yeah, yeah, I made tons of mistakes and, but that's learning, you know, and I wanted that for my classroom. So if you could define design thinking for someone who doesn't know what it is, who might be listening, how, what would be a succinct way that you would explain that? Um, the, the launch, uh, design thinking is really, it's a checklist for me, honestly, as I'm preparing things. So each letter and see if I can remember all of them without my notes in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> L is for look, listen, and learn. So first we want students to just kind of be looking, listening, learning. And this is John Spencer's idea here too that we're that we're uh, sharing. Um, then the A is having them ask lots of questions. Give them that time to ask questions. Um, understand the problem. So there's a lot of talk about problem-based learning right now, and this goes right along with that. There it goes right with that. Um, what is the problem? It doesn't have to be a huge thing, but you know, it could be like, can you design a shaker for a rock band? There's a rock band coming and they need a shaker that sounds cool and looks cool and can play rhythms accurately. And I'm assessing the rhythm playing, but they think they're making this amazing thing for a rock band. So um, that's uh, look, listen, and learn, ask questions, understand the problem. Um, then they give them time to just navigate ideas. And so they'll create a prototype. They'll talk through ideas. How do we make this? Do I need a team? Can I do this on my own? What help do I need from my teacher? That sort of thing. 
Um, and then we just give them time to try it highlight it and fix it, get some feedback, and then find a place to share it. And so that's sort of the design process that I really kind of go back to. And I'll look and I'll check my plans and my ideas and say, am I giving all those opportunities to students? Or no, I didn't really give them that time to ask the questions. I need to go back and find a way to add that in somewhere. And it's a really good reflective process. Um, when you're coming up with new ideas or you're thinking, why didn't that one lesson work? Why wasn't that impactful? Maybe you can go back and look and say, you know what? I didn't give the students this opportunity. I'll try it again. Um, so we're iterating as teachers and we're also modeling that for our students too. That's a, such a crucial part of learning. Um, and like Catherine said, you know, you get some new toy or something and it's like, I've got to try it. I've got to try it. And you have that intrinsic motivation because you know what it can do. So when you have this design idea of, I want to make this, you're going to find every way around. You're not going to get upset when plan A doesn't work. You've got a plan B ready to go. So in my experience, what I've observed with teachers kind of dabbling in this or thinking about it or having conversations around this is teacher comfort level. So what, what ways have you navigated that yourself as you started going through this work? Because, you know, as for me, someone also who shifted on this early on in my career, there were significant growing pains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were times when, I mean, my colleague, I was just like verbal diarrhea after every class. Like, I don't know that they learned anything. It was like, everyone was all over the place. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? I think this is right. And I mean, it was just this back and forth of just being super uncomfortable all the time, but knowing that this is really what learning is supposed to look like, even though it was so different from my training. So I, I guess I want to, my question is twofold. So how did you personally navigate through this when you started the work? And then what, advice or suggestions do you have to teachers who are feeling uncomfortable right now? I would say for me, it was, I started a blog and, you know, you don't have to start a blog, but for me, it was just, I needed a place to kind of reflect, um, and, 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 and write what worked and what didn't work. And it just, that that helped me think through, um, you know, and, 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 you know, and I'm starting out with my successes, right? Because no one wants to be like writing a blog and be like, you know, these were horrible things that happened today. But, you know, but, but so writing off on some of the successes, but then taking the time and once you gain some confidence to look at those things that didn't go so well and why did they not go so well? Or did they just, did you perceive them as not going so for, oh, you know, going over very well? Because that lack of control of like, you let the kids have a little bit more control that day. And that just feels like, you know, I, I, I was taught 20 plus years ago, you know, the teach, you know, if I wasn't hoarse and tired by the end of the day, I wasn't really doing my job. Right. And instead of like, no, why don't we let the kids have a little bit more of the, the diving and into the, the learning and discovering and talking in small groups and things like that. So, um, it was, for me, it was blogging. And I think the other powerful thing was finding like-minded teachers to talk to. So I could say, okay, Abby, I'm going to do this new thing. And I'm really worried about it. And because I think of this, this, and this, and she'll say, well, why don't you try this? Or why don't you just try, you know, she just kind of helped um, me think through things or just say, it's going to be fine or, you know, whatever. So that, that, and also just trusting the kids would be sometimes whenever we would have a, a lesson. And I remember one time a lesson went extremely well. And I was just kind of like, it felt new to me. So I was like, why, you know, 
I guess I just was kind of baffled at like, why were they so engaged? So when they were lining up, I just said, guys, you looked like you had so much fun today. Can someone put in words, what was it that made it so fun or that you had such a good time with? And I learned so much for the three minutes they were standing in line ready to leave my classroom of like, you gave us a choice in what instrument we use. I liked being in small groups or whatever it was that they told me, like, it was just like, you know, listening to your kids was, was really amazing too. And I can say for me, practically, like that whole idea of releasing the control and it's not just me lecturing and give an activity and then receive it back. That was that was kind of a hard step at first, and it was very messy. So my way of going about it was I would practice it with that class that were, maybe I could predict the outcome. <laughs> I would try it with that one class or that one grade level and just do a small thing once. Um, we always tell people that um, our students and stuff, um, you know, try that that one throwaway day, that one day before winter break or something try one of these lessons then because what do you have to lose and just see you know test it out a little bit um for steam that was a big thing because there was a lot of technology involved too and i didn't have all of the technology and i wasn't sure how it would go so i got a small group and i had like a club and we met with about 10 kids who were highly motivated already and i got to try it out and make a lot of um mistakes then and figure it out. And then I was ready to take it to kind of bigger groups as well. So kind of looking for those days when like, you know, I, I want to try this, but I'm really nervous. Don't jump all in right away. Like try it so that you can kind of practice and get used to that feeling of relinquishing control to some extent too, putting the learning in their hands. And we always do it together first. We always do a whole class example so they know what the end product will be like. And then, um, yeah, giving them those guidelines. But it does take a lot of practice to try that out. So baby steps, you know, try a little bit. Try it with a safe group, um, like the scientific theories and stuff. Try it with a, con a little control group and uh, start there. So something else you mentioned earlier was about assessment. I think the one of the biggest obstacles about doing it correctly are teacher perceptions of what assessment could look like. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you use assessment as a tool to help kids continue on the, with the creative process. What kind of things do you just, do you find are quantifiable versus the creative process, which is mostly you know, qual like subjective, right? It's qualitative information. So how do you, how do you work that out? Um, I would say like, if we're doing a big creative thing, we're doing like, we do something called an empathy project where you're using steam technologies and you're making something that will help the world or someone in your world um, through this technology. So if you do that, that's a very big project. It's specific in its outcome. And I can't grade the end result because there's so many factors that might influence what it is. And it's not for me to judge someone's um, creative effort, I suppose, but I can. So a lot of my assessments happen along the way. I want to see if they can use that technology, if they understand chord structure that they are using with that technology. I like to assess along the way. Um, the assessment is never the motivation, though. 
Um, it's not the end product. We assess along the way. Again, with like the shaker too, if you're making a, a fancy shaker for a rock band, I honestly don't care what it looks like. That's kind of the fun part for them where they get to be creative. I care that you found what makes a clear sound and you can play the rhythms that I have given you that are your benchmarks for your grade level <laughs> that you can play those accurately with your shaker. So I'm sort of looking at a different thing. Um, they're not focused necessarily on the assessment. Then the assessment happens as part of the process, but it is not their focus. And um, as a teacher, I'm able to walk around with them in small groups or whatever, and it's a lot less pressure off of the assessment too. Um, it does make it harder because it's not all on paper, you know? And so it might involve lots of digital projects too. So we have a digital portfolio that I can go back and look at in my own time too. I capture a lot of things digitally to go back to later and assess. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, you know, creativity, I can't decide. I can't tell you that your idea is better than Catherine's idea or that it has more value. Um, so we have to really look with assessment on what are those concrete, what is the concrete data that we can get? And then for us, we use like a system of four, three, two, one. And we say three is where you want to be. That means you have made it. You have done what we have asked of you. But sometimes there's a kid who's a four who's going above and beyond. And those are those kids that really show a huge um, amount of creativity in their work. They're able to apply it creatively. Um, those are sort of our above and beyond students. And we hope to get everyone there. But, um, you know, depending on rhythms versus expressive movement, you have to assess them completely different ways. And I think something that taught the pandemic taught me um, was just this, the power of what a digital tool can do. I mean, I just feel like letting kids reflect and just listening to their words, you learn so much from them drawing and talking about what they're creating, what words they couldn't say or didn't, didn't quite understand. There's just so much power in letting them, you know, create something and then listening to it. Um, and I feel like the other piece definitely was, and I, I had done this before, but it was just in my face this year with being um, in remote learning was just the multiple different opportunities to show your learning, you know, like that, the, the, I have children who, you know, don't want to do a singing game and sing in front of everybody, but like give them a puppet and then they will sing, you know, you hear their beautiful little singing voice. So everybody just kind of has their own, um, I don't, I, I don't know what that, I mean, I want to say limitations and that's not what it is, but you've got to give them multiple ways to, to share their learning. And I think when you listen to kids and you give them the opportunity, the assessment is something where they are reflecting themselves. You learn so much more than, you know, a Google form or a, a, a sheet that has like these little, um, these questions that don't always, you don't always get everything about it. Right. You know, or you have an, an EL student who the language is the barrier. And so it wasn't necessarily that they didn't understand it, but that, you know, the worksheet wasn't helping them. So I just, yeah, listen, the power of listening to kids is, is really wonderful in assessment and helping you inform your instruction for next time. Yeah. So it sounds like the way you work it is that it's assessment is really organically weaved into the process uh -huh. and it's not the focus necessarily for the kids, but they're getting the feedback they need to do the, to, to elevate and you're getting the information you need to inform your teaching. And I think that's where people get tripped up. 
that they see it as something that it's not. And it's that same conversation over and over about, you know, square peg, round hole. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> you're missing the point then, you know, and um, it's, I, I appreciate you being so articulate about it. So another thing that I'm, I, I keep picking up on is what you're saying. And you said this twice already, both of you is that, you know, having students find themselves in the lessons. And that's actually been a theme with almost everyone that I've spoken to at this podcast. At some point, someone said that is that kids need to see themselves in the lessons. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, and what you've seen when you, when you actively strive to do that in your lessons. That makes me think of Abby. I mean, I feel like I hear Abby say all the time, like they're little musical beings and you want them to see themselves as that, right? And I think we we do, we are lucky to have the littles. And so, but you have kids that walk in and who say like, I'm not creative or I don't do music or I can't. And I guess it's just that that growth, developing that growth mindset of, but you, you can, we're all learning and helping them see themselves um, as musical beings and, and seeing themselves as empathetic people. And there's just so many things that I think we, in my classroom, I want them to see themselves as, and they don't come in necessarily feeling that way. And I want them to leave knowing that they are, you know, they're confident lifelong learners of uh, music and they can do it. Well, and the idea that you don't have to be an orchestra only, you know, there's there's more ways to enjoy music in life than just joining a professional symphony. That's one way that you can do it. And that's a very visible way. But like, you know, it's that whole concept of a lifelong learner, too. Um, how is music going to be a part of your life? It would be such a shame if you went through my classroom, six to eight years in my classroom, and left feeling like music's not my thing. I don't have a place in it. Like, shame on me. I haven't given you enough opportunities then. Um, you know, rhythms are hard to do, but with beat blocks, if you're literally building them and you're like, oh, that's all it is, they fit in a measure. Yes, they do. What ones do you want to put in a measure? What sounds good? And they, it, breaking things down for them into just those little bites throughout the years can really boost their confidence and help them discover, like, I do have musical ideas. I maybe I don't like that kind of music, but I like this kind of music. We do a lot of work trying to get them to practice um, thinking as critical consumers, too. And not, instead of saying, that's weird, that's not my thing. Like, oh, well, why? Tell me specifically what is different to you. I wonder why those musicians do that. Let's look into it. And um, instead of just immediately that kid doesn't like music or kid walks and I'm not into this. Okay, well, we offer multiple opportunities so you can find what you do like. And that's a starting point. Yeah, yeah it's a shift in thinking, right? Because um, we don't teach music. We teach kids critical thinking skills through music. Right. At least that's how I interpret what our job is. And that's a really big difference in someone saying, you know, I teach science. And that is just content. And what we're doing is so much more than that. And, and what you're explaining is so much more than that. Because the point is, would we love everyone to be connected to their musical identity? Absolutely. But more so if we can give them the critical thinking skills to communicate about music, because they're either going to be consumers of it. Yay, us. <laughs> right? Um, and that that shift is not just semantics. I think that that's a really important 
thing to to ponder on, I think, for for some some folks who are are maybe struggling with some of these ideas, mm-hmm. because I think that's why. And I think what was so interesting was that COVID highlighted all of that, right? Where you you really saw the teachers who were so connected to the content, like uh-huh. it could not have been as hard as it was, <laughs> right? I mean, it just if we were doing it right, this it shouldn't have been that hard. And I thought that all those conversations were fascinating. And I enjoyed facilitating those conversations and hearing the discourse. It was really fascinating. And it's complicated, right? I mean, these things are connected to our personal identities too. And there's a lot of layers in all of it. But at the end of the day, we're public servants who have a job um, and really defining what that job is, is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to know also a little bit more and then I want to get to your books. I wanted to, you said STEAM a lot. And I come from a district that um, we are, you know, well, I, I did um, far behind. STEAM is buzzy, but there isn't really any action involved with STEAM. So can you just explain how your STEAM program got started? STEAM does kind of bring that creativity to the forefront. And I was struggling with or not struggling, but like trying to kind of challenge myself from, from being somebody who really um, wanted my, my classroom to be very engaging to this new idea of empowerment. Like how, how do I pass it to them and make sure that they are really the ones owning learning? And I'm not the one that's, you know, doing all of the, of the steps and things. And so when you do activity, STEAM activities, it really does pass, you know, the kids are knee deep in that learning. And, uh, so it kind of helped me when I, when I did some activities like that, it helped me to see, you know, the qualities or the ways that, uh, you know, to see the kids light bulb, to see the excitement, to see the um, collaborating and all that. It was just like, this, this is what it needs to be like, right? In the classroom. And how can I um, not just say, okay, today's a, or this week is a, a STEAM project, but how can that kind of go into all of the things that I, that I do in my classroom? Right. And then, and life doesn't exist in the cell. And that's, I think, part, part of the, the, very one of the strange things about the way we do education it's like here's social studies here's math here's science here's music and unless you're lucky and you have creative teachers who are like well let's work together for a unit or a semester you know the the transfer doesn't happen so of course when they get out into the world they don't understand how the how the transfers happen so it seems that that these steam projects explicitly make it clear what the transfer is and then again, not just strive for engagement, which is fine inherently, but uh, learner empowerment. So I want to know about your inspiration to write your latest book. I mean, I know that there's lots of literature out there that you've uh, created and, and co-authored on. And um, I, I want to make sure that we hit on the things that are really important to you. Well, Abby, Abby and I, the Blair Finch Project has come out with uh, two books recently that have been you know, passions of ours for a long time. And so it's really nice to have them come out to the world a little bit. Um, So we have Full Steam Ahead, which is, again, like emphasizes the idea of a makerspace in the the music classroom and, you know, how you incorporate STEAM activities uh, in the music room without, um, you know, without losing music concepts as the forefront of your um, time. So... We've tried to do the hard work for the teachers, the messy part that's ugly, 
which is thinking through all of the standards and aligning it with the tech standards, engineering, science, math. We've aligned those already. So it gives you some common terminology and language and focus to um, pulling from those other subjects and conversation starters if you're if you are going to collaborate with a science teacher on it, you have a starting place. We also tried to break down um, in that book. Um, how do you do this lesson if you have no technology? How do you do it if you have a little bit? How do you do it if you're one to one? in a well-funded district. And so for each lesson, we break down how the lesson would look in each of those scenarios and which one is kind of recommended so that you don't, you can kind of skip through that trial and error. <laughs> We've gone through that for you and documented it and um, try to make it very user-friendly. And also um, there's an online component. So we have a, a zillion tutorials and video examples and, um, just tried to make it easy for the teachers. We have a few like, okay, this part of the book's just for the teachers. You need these skills. This isn't necessarily a lesson for the kids, but here's what you need to know. Here's step-by-step -step how to do it. Now that you've got that, here's some fun lessons that you can use with the kids that, like Catherine said, always maintain a musical objective. Yeah, and then our second book is the Everyone Loves a Story, which Abby talked about a little bit earlier, which has just been, I think, a passion of both of ours of just, we both love children's books, and kids love children's books, and just the idea, I mean, I guess the book kind of outlines how, because a lot of people ask us, like, well, how did you come up with that idea to do it with that book, you know, because oftentimes we'll pick books that are not, you don't look at it and think it's going to be a music book, um, but just how we find inspiration when we create the books and then just, uh, you know, sharing fun lessons, um, you know, that we feel like kids, everyone loves a story, you know, right. You can start with a story and then go from there to creating a whole new uh, lesson off of that book. So not just here's a packet of lessons, but here's how to create more your, on your own. So we kind of talk through our process of how we find children's books and we break them down and kind of find inspiration from them and how to do that as well as here's some that we've done. Yeah. And then as we went through this process during the pandemic, we added like a little bit of a remote learning or I forget what we called it, but it was just like, okay, so if you're, and really, honestly, I think now, right, I think almost all of us have had our last snow day we'll ever have, right? So there's going to be times where we're going to go remote again, you know, for a day or something, or they're great uh, sub plans too. But just the idea of how do I take this and put it in a distance learning setting or, you know, I can't be there that day kind of setting. So that's wonderful. And it's so inspiring when teachers share their ideas. And I, I want to also, people ask me this a lot, and I'm going to ask you the same thing you know, what, what advice do you have for people who are like, you know, I have this thing to tell. I don't know if anyone's really interested in hearing my story. I don't, it's that huge imposter syndrome. People uh -huh. really struggle with that. Uh, so, so why, why did you decide, no, this is something I want to share. How did you come to that? I had a moment years ago when I was at a conference and I was looking over the schedule and I was so upset that they had nothing about technology and none of the things I was interested. No one was presenting and I really wanted to learn more about that stuff. And my friend that was with me is like, well, then you do it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and for me, that was when I crossed the line. Like, 
I have found a gap. I have found something that I feel isn't being said, and I feel like I know how to say it. So I'm going to go and step out. And then it's taken years and years before, like, we've had books and things. But, you know, it started local. I'm going to, you know, share at my in my district or my area or maybe sign up for the state conference and just kind of try that out. And presenting and doing all of this is its own art form as well. So that's something that we're still working on and crafting and perfecting through the years. But, you know, it really took that moment of... um I feel that something is missing and I know what it is. So that means I need to do the work to try to fill in the gap. That's how we help the, that's how we help our profession move forward. Yeah. And for me, it was, I started with the blog and just, it was kind of just a space for myself. And as I reflected more and more, I just, and the more books I read and just kind of that growth mindset of like, I do have something to share. I have something to share and it's important that I share it, um, that I speak up and that I, and that I, I share what I've learned. And when I do that, I learn so much from other people um, and make connections with people um, that I have no idea where they're going to go, but it, it pushes my thinking and it, it, it keeps me innovating. And so it's, it's, I just kind of started little and it just kind of grows. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. You know, and that's my response. It's like, well, you have everyone has a story to tell <laughs> everyone loves story everyone has a story to tell and if you approach it from the, the only person who could tell your story is you uh-huh. and you can do that with complete honesty and integrity and then there's no imposter syndrome anymore so I always end the interview with the same question what is your dream for the future of music education I guess I just want to make sure that what we uh, what is inside our classroom um you know, is, is truly what the, reflects our world, right? That um, the kids can see themselves um, in my classroom. They can see themselves as a, a musician, a lifelong learner, in that, you know, they have, they have the tools that they're going to need in the future, I guess. So I have to make sure that I'm innovating and pushing forward so that, you know, it's relevant to them. It's, you know, it's something that's important to them that they'll have in their life, whether they make that their profession or not, it's something that's going to be, that they're going to take with them their whole, with their whole life. And I feel like sometimes with the way we do education right now, we are, we are letting people, or we are, people are leaving our classrooms thinking music education isn't for them or thinking that they don't fit there. And that to me is not, it's not okay. I want every kid to feel like that is something that they are a musical being, right? That they can create whatever that is. If that's just with Dawes or that is picking up an instrument and playing or just consuming at a, at a concert that they do relate to music and they are, um, they are able to, you know, interact with music and feel confident in it. And I think my, my dream for music education, my classroom um, specifically is just, to start to see the shift. Our world has changed so much and education has changed so much, but a lot of us are still clinging to the way that we did it. And we just can't. And there's, I know music education often gets a bad rap for being a little old school um, because it's comfortable and it's what we know. 
and it's safe. And I just want to see the profession in general kind of start to change. And I, I am seeing that and I love it. And it's been great talking to you because I feel like there are so many people out there trying to do this. We just need to find each other and really band together. Um, in my classroom specifically, I want kids happy. I want them creating. I want them leaving and loving music the rest of their life and some whatever capacity fits their life. You know, um, that's kind of my dream for them. I think the question will always be, how can we continue to be progressive in a changing world so we keep reflecting our current reality and still prepare students for a world that doesn't exist yet? To learn more about the Blair Finch Project and how to reach Abigail and Catherine, follow them on all of their social media handles and their website, all of which are located in the podcast notes. Until next time, this is Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Molly Reagan and Good Neighbor Art, and music by John Kiefner. 